0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: Good afternoon, everybody. I hope you're all having a... Um, today I want to speak... ...and are sitting very comfortably. I'm not going to apologize for the fact that this talk is not going to be entirely about comfortable subjects. Um, today I want to speak about human extinction, extinction risk, and all of the different kinds of really, really large-scale risks that don't always get talked about, don't get thought about a lot, are all very unlikely to happen at any one moment, but still are something that we need to address as a society. So if we think back quite far, a long, long time ago when the The earth was already very old but a bit younger than it is now and humanity was first being born and emerging. And there were a few moments in that period of history where there was a real chance that historical accident could have meant that things turned out differently and that humanity didn't exist in the way that it does today. And a very bad drought or a very bad pandemic might have meant the end for humanity and then we sort of we grew and we became more sophisticated more powerful we spread out over the world and we became much more resilient against extinction Uh, something would have needed to be truly global in scope at that point to wipe us out and we became much much safer as a species and one of the things that appears to have happened over the last century maybe over the last decades is that that might be starting to change as our technologies become more powerful more global in scope the potential for that kind of extinction event might be coming back onto the horizon for humanity and certainly the scope for various kinds of global risks um, are very significant. So in my talk today I'm going to address five different kinds of global risks, sort of really big-scale risks, bigger than the sorts of things we normally think about. Less likely, but also potentially more disastrous. And I'm going to ask for each one, does this have the potential to lead to our extinction? If so, what can we do about it? And at a bigger level, what can humanity, what can this country uh, do in order to build the institutions that are able to protect us from those kinds of quite extreme scenarios? I'll start with a little bit of sort of historical precedent, trying to sort of talk about some of the, the sorts of things that I, I'm referring to. So this slide shows something which happened some time ago in the 20th century, but where some people alive today lost family in this, this catastrophe, and this was the Spanish flu pandemic in 1918 which swept across the globe, sort of already the world weakened by the the First World War, and killed between two and five percent of the world's population at that time, making it the, in relative terms, single most deadly event that has happened over the 20th century, and certainly in in quite some time. Uh, Now, this isn't something that could happen in exactly the same way in the modern day, and I'll talk about that a little bit in a moment, but it also shouldn't be regarded as the, the worst-case scenario. This, you know, remember, this is something that killed between 2 and 5% of the world's population at that time, uh, far more than the First World War, far more than the Second World War, or at least quite a lot more than the Second World War. Uh, but it's very far from the most disastrous similar event in history. So everybody knows about the Black Death. Very hard to work out how much of humanity that killed. But Plausible estimates say maybe 15% of all of humankind. And that wasn't the first pandemic like that either. Much, much less well-known is something called the Great Plague of Justinian, which happened in the 5th century, uh, which also killed maybe 15% of mankind and led to huge geopolitical transitions. Both of these led to huge geopolitical transitions, one sort of bringing about the fall of then one of the world's greatest empires, and then one leading to, you know, arguably some decades, some centuries down the line, um, industrialization and the development of a middle class. Um, these sorts of things give us some, some calibration. There are things that can happen that might kill more than a tenth of humanity. Really, really dramatic scale. So compare this to Ebola, which killed um, on the order of tens of thousands of people. Uh, here we're talking about the sort of thing which might kill, call it, 10% of humanity, that's something like 700 million people, completely different scale, Um, the sort of thing that we don't normally consider, but which definitely happens. So we had something similar happen in the last century, and then these other things have happened throughout humanity's history. And there's at least some potential. You can't see this very well, and I apologize for that, but there's at least some potential for something like this emerging in the future. So this maps a, a model of the SARS Um, outbreak which some of you may remember from 2002, late 2002, early 2003. It didn't end up going very far um, but it at least had the potential to. And we should expect more and more similar outbreaks to happen in the future and I'm going to explain a few of the reasons sort of structural reasons why we should expect more things like that to happen and why we, we may well be quite well prepared but we may be not as well prepared as we'd like to be and it may still pose a substantial risk. I also want to highlight that I'm not just very, very far from just talking about uh, disease. Disease is one of the sorts of things that might kill huge, huge swathes of humanity. But what I have here, and you can't read it, and that's fine, is um, a letter penned by a physicist um, named Leo Szilard in 1939 and then signed by Albert Einstein to then-president Roosevelt, of the United States warning him about the potential for a nuclear chain reaction. So what happened is in in early 1939 in various physics journals some papers got published indicating the potential for nuclear fission and this was sort of the first time anyone had really seriously discovered this potential and then one physicist thought to himself huh you could get a chain reaction coming out of this And if you could do that, it might lead to enormous explosive force, world-changing explosive force. And this is one brain came up with this idea, one person, in 1939, shortly before Hitler invaded Poland. And he got together a couple of people, and rather than shout out his discovery to the world, he went straight to the president and said, look, you have to keep an eye on this. This led a few years down the line to the Manhattan Project, and only six years later, the first nuclear weapon was used in warfare. And a relatively short time after that, nuclear weapons had the potential to kill a large portion of humanity. So estimates in 1979, quite a bit later, by the US government, uh, predicted that something like 40 to 70% of the United States' population and 20 to 40% of Russia's population might die within a month of a nuclear exchange. Um, and that's certainly a very, very large portion of humanity. Uh, and the long-term consequences would then add on to that total. Um, And I think it's important for us to think about now and today that this process from the very, very first person even imagining a nuclear chain reaction to getting to the stage where maybe a tenth of humanity could die in a nuclear exchange was a matter of of years. So six years from the idea to the ability to do it at all and then maybe another five to ten years before this had a global scope in terms of the stockpiles. So call that something like 15 years. It's conceivable that there are ideas floating around right now that we don't know about yet, which might have that sort of um, complicated implications for our civilization in in 20 years, 15 years. Uh, I'm not saying there are. I don't think anyone's in a position to say that there are. But we at least need to treat it as a live possibility that there are unknown unknowns floating around the, the intellectual world that might have that kind of potential. So what am I talking about here? I think it's important when thinking about disaster risk, (coughs) which I spend a lot of my time thinking about. I sort of, I work at the the Global Priorities Project, which is a think tank in Oxford that's a collaboration between the Center for Effective Altruism, which is a nonprofit, and the Future of Humanity Institute, which is part of the university. Uh, And we think a lot about the sorts of issues that might get neglected in policy because of various political biases, or uh, decision-making biases that we we know about from research in behavioral psychology. And these particularly emerge where there are sort of huge orders of magnitude, um, large, large variations in the size, the impact of a thing, um, or where there are really small probabilities and a lot of uncertainty. So this is an area that we then look at a lot. And we, we categorize different types of risk in terms of their severity, so this is how Um, decisively bad it is for the people affected, and the scope. So this is how broad a group of people is affected. And you can imagine, on the one hand, things that are sort of imperceptible, um, either at a human level, you you lose a hair, um, um, or at a global level, the world warms by .001 degrees. These are all relatively insignificant. They don't matter particularly. Um, And as you go up in severity, uh, on a personal level, you might get really, really tragic events, but not necessarily events that the international community should be reacting to, or it would be appropriate for the whole international community to be reacting to. But as you go up both on severity and in terms of scope, you get to these risks that I'm talking about here, sort of these global catastrophic risks that have a huge potential to determine the trajectory of mankind, at least in principle, Um, or to to scar a generation, to sort of leave its mark on a generation, be remembered as a devastating event that shaped humanity. Um, And I think these are things that don't receive as much attention as they deserve, partly because we prefer not to think about it. Um, It's an unpleasant thing to think about, so we'd rather not, partly because they're very unlikely to happen in any, say, one political administration. Um, If I'm an MP, I think I can pretty much bet that this sort of event, a a world-shaping pandemic, is not going to happen on my watch. Uh, So no one's probably going to end up holding me to account for not preparing for it. But if we keep making that kind of calculation year after year for the next 50 years, it really is quite likely that something like that might happen in a 50-year period. So there are structural reasons here that we want to sort of demand extra attention to these really, really big scale risks that happen very rarely, but would be devastating if they did happen. So, let me give you some idea of the sorts of things that I'm talking about. I'm talking about really catastrophic climate change, so climate change gets a lot of attention, but there's a side to climate change that's getting a little bit more attention now, but I think deserves much, much more. Uh, Nuclear war, widely discussed. I think it's fallen a little bit off the radar of the international community since the end of the Cold War, and I think that's a that's a shame because we can't take our eye off that ball. Um, there are natural and engineered pandemics, so I talked a little bit about pandemics that have happened historically, but as technologies for manipulating viruses become more sophisticated, the potential for engineered pandemics starts to grow and we need to start thinking about that. Then there are other technological risks, Uh, Engineered pandemics are a form of technological risk. Uh, Nuclear weapons are a form of technological risk. But then there's this sort of bucket of emerging technological risks which might be very poorly understood, but which might shape the future. Um, And then lastly, sort of natural disasters. And often the poster child for extinction risk is something like an asteroid strike or a supervolcano, the sorts of things that uh, might have, although there's some debate among academics about this, led to the extinction of, say, the dinosaurs. these are something that I'll also discuss, although I think the risk of those gets overplayed pretty substantially, and actually we shouldn't be that worried about them at all, and I'll explain why in a moment. So let's start with, with climate change. This is I find this one really interesting. Over the last couple of decades, climate change has uh, really come into its own as a thing that's quite uncontroversial as a, a threat to humanity. It remains controversial in some circles, but broadly all climate scientists agree that Uh, anthropogenic global climate change is happening, um, that it's the result of greenhouse gases. And last year we saw the Paris Agreement, all of the nations of the world uh, got together and committed to do something about climate change. Although we shouldn't get complacent about that, the distance between sort of all agreeing that we ought to do something about climate change and, and getting things done is pretty far. And I think sometimes people sort of chalk that one up as a win and say, "Okay, now we can all go home. And that's just not the case. Um, But there's this whole extra angle on climate change which doesn't get enough discussion, which is catastrophic extreme levels of climate change. Uh, We're talking something like ballpark more than six degrees of warming. So not the one and a half, two degrees of warming that are often discussed in policy environments, but sort of six, seven, eight, or even more. And now, why would these things happen? they might happen because of something sort of threshold effects. So these are uh, systems in our ecosystem which, once uh, disturbed, cause rapid warming in a way that's very, very hard to reverse. So the, the standard example of this is methane trapped under Arctic permafrost. Once that permafrost thaws, the methane escapes into the atmosphere. And we get significant warming as a result, because methane is a very potent greenhouse gas, much more potent, actually, than, than carbon dioxide. Um, And I should should flag this is not a thing about which scientists disagree. So all climate scientists agree that there are threshold effects uh, that might be crossed by global warming at somewhere in the range of 2 to 5 degrees and we don't know where the first of these will start to come into play. The only thing scientists disagree about is how exactly to model them, where these things start to kick in. And it's that reason rather than that people disagree about them happening in principle that they're not in the sort of standard official climate models that the IPCC uses. Um, There are other reasons that we might get far more warming than we're expecting. One is if climate sensitivity, so that's the degree to which the the world warms or changes as a result of a given amount of of climate forcing. Um, Another is if people are just way worse than we expect them to be at actually getting together and reducing carbon emissions. And I think that's realistic and needs to be on the table. So imagine you know, we have all of these potential reasons. How likely is this? What kind of probabilities am I talking about? Um, well, I'm, I'm talking about pretty big probabilities. And so this is using IPCC data. Um, the sort of climate scientists Wagner and Weitzman uh, did some estimates of what kind of probability there might be of uh, more than six degrees of warming on a, a sort of low medium emissions trajectory outlined by the IPCC and they say there's something like a three percent probability of of more than six degrees of warming on that um, model and remember this doesn't include any of the threshold effects that all scientists agree exist they just don't know how to model um, so it's not accounting for those at all so we should expect the actual probability to potentially be higher and on the sort of medium high emissions trajectories that people think are Maybe a bit more plausible if policymakers don't all get their act together. Um, you're looking at 10% um, probability again on these models which don't use uh, threshold effects. Now, this is pretty remarkable. Um, there are relatively few things we're willing to accept a between 3 and 10 percent chance of our world changing to the point where it's almost unrecognizably different. You know, the six degrees is not just a bit hotter in the summer. This is major changes in climate patterns. This is um, far, far more extreme climate events which might potentially displace or kill or injure huge, huge parts of humanity. Um, so I think it is worth discussing and talking about, although I also do need to caveat that All of the climate models that stretch out that far are very inaccurate. We know they're inaccurate, because we don't have any good examples of what ecosystems that have been warmed that much look like and how those dynamics behave. So there's a lot of uncertainty here, but it's at least a risk that's big enough we should pay some attention to it. Uh, Now, could this cause human extinction? I would argue it probably wouldn't, um, mostly because I think we have a lot of potential through our scientific ingenuity to come up with uh, ways to cope but not ways to thrive. So it's unlikely to cause human extinction but it's quite likely to cause real, real damage to people and really hamstring civilization and us reaching our potential. Uh, So what do we do if we want to stop it? Well, the answers are unfortunately very well known. The reason I say it's unfortunate is they're not necessarily happening at the pace that you'd like. Um, but we know that things like carbon taxes are great ways to sort of efficiently reduce um, carbon dioxide emissions. We know that investment in, especially research into new um, alternative fuel sources, is a very, very cost effective intervention. Uh, these things are underway. They're getting there, but they're not there yet, and we should keep pushing on it. Uh, I'll talk quickly about nuclear weapons. I think this is something where we've we've sort of forgotten to a certain extent how uh, risky nuclear warfare at one point was, and also that we still have something like ten thousand nuclear warheads stockpiled around the world. Um Now, what kind of probability is there of an actual nuclear exchange? well we we need to look at you know JFK famously said that uh, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, he thought that the chance of of a nuclear exchange, was between one and three and evens, um, which is uncomfortably high, or should be uncomfortably high for anybody. <coughs> now, has the world got safer since then? Absolutely. Absolutely it's gotten safer since then. The probability of an exchange like that is much lower than it, it once was. Uh, we need to remember it isn't that long, though, since there were really near misses on nuclear accidents. So in 1995, um, the Russians mistook a Norwegian weather rocket, for an incoming nuclear attack. And Boris Yeltsin had the the codes and the nuclear suitcase open in front of him and was sort of on the edge of initiating something potentially catastrophic. And it didn't happen. Um, And we might hope that it continues not to happen. We're in a safer geopolitical climate now, but it's important to remember how fast things can get bad uh, and how chaotic the world geopolitical scene is. So before the First World War, Nobody was really expecting things to get as bad as quickly as it, it did. And so we shouldn't become complacent just because it seems like the world is relatively peaceful now. And some of the events that have been happening in um, all, all over the world in the last two years uh, might give some room to, to be a little bit doubtful about the future. Now, what can we do on this? There are, there are two things that have been done a lot already. One is reducing stockpiles that needs to continue. Um, one is securing uh, nuclear arsenals so that they 're not stolen or misused uh, now a- answering the question the, could this cause human extinction?" The answer is uh, maybe um, probably not, but maybe, and if it causes human extinction, it's going to be because of uh, nuclear winters rather than because of um, the the direct consequences of the exchange, which might you know merely kill half of humanity um, obviously very bad, um, but not extinction, but so the way nuclear winter works is the firestorms that are caused by nuclear warfare release a huge amount of particulate matter into the atmosphere. And that blocks out sunlight, potentially for a very long time, which makes agriculture, at least conventional agriculture, basically impossible. Uh, Now there's a lot of uncertainty about how bad that would be. We haven't done any really good models of this since the 80s and city design has changed since then. Um, So it's not clear if actually you would get a nuclear winter or how long it would last. But it's one of these things where, you know, not being sure about something should leave us still a little bit uncomfortable since we have observed these sort of huge emissions of particulate matter in the past with different types of explosions. Uh, So what do we do about that to stop the chance of, of human extinction? Well, there are things that we can do. We can explore food technologies which don't rely as much on sunlight. And that is something that's receiving a little bit of attention, but probably not quite as much as it deserves. Uh, I'll talk quickly about pandemics. I've discussed these a little bit already. Uh, and I'll preface this with you know, the answer to the question, could this lead to human extinction, is probably not. Um, there have been almost no mammal species that have ever been killed by a pandemic, sort of extinguished by a pandemic. And that should leave us some, some hope for comfort, particularly because we understand pandemics better than any other species ever has. We know how to do quarantines. We know how to, um, what causes transmission. We know sanitation. All sorts of things that wasn't even well understood in 1918 for the Spanish influenza. But there are also some reasons to think that we might be more vulnerable in some ways to pandemics than we we were historically. So much of the dangerous uh, potential for pandemics comes from something that's called zoonotic crossover, which is when humans living uh, close to dense populations of animals um, cause a a crossover of a virus that normally spreads in in animals, comes to humans, and then becomes transmissible between different humans. Uh, Now, why are these especially dangerous? Well, it's because humans haven't evolved to be resistant against um, those viruses. And so they at least have the potential to be much more dangerous pathogens. Usually you get this, uh, fortunately for us, this trade-off between lethality and um, transmission and transmissibility. Which means that relatively often you either have something that spreads across the world or you have something that's incredibly deadly, but rarely both combined. Sometimes this, we get unlucky and we can imagine that if we keep rolling the dice we might get unlucky at some point over the next century. But we might also uh, suffer from what I hinted at before, which is the possibility for engineered pandemics, where someone uh, with ill intent, maybe a terrorist intent, uh, deliberately combines lethality with transmissibility and maybe also makes... um, So one thing that often helps us implement quarantines and things like that is if a disease only becomes transmissible after symptoms emerge. Um, Now, there are some diseases where it's transmissible before symptoms emerge. And those are really, really hard to fight. So HIV is an example of something like that, which are very, very hard to contain because they become transmissible before you know you have it. Uh, so it's at least possible to engineer something like that. And that, I think, could be a real threat to humanity's existence if it were to emerge, although it's worth pointing out that probably no one has the ability to do that now and probably only state actors, if, if there are any. Um, and to combat it, there are things we can do. We can increase our ability to, to quickly synthesize vaccines all over the world rather than just in rich countries. Um, and that's something that the international community is working on but clearly isn't there, as demonstrated by our inability to contain uh, quickly enough the Ebola epidemic a few years back, which was, as pandemics go, r- extremely simple from a technical perspective to contain. Uh, Now I want to talk about, I think, one of the more interesting categories of risk, which is the sort of unknown unknowns. We don't necessarily know what these technologies are going to be that might pose an extinction risk for humanity. Um, And I'm not going to say that any of the things that I'm going to describe do pose such a risk, but I think they pose the potential. Uh, And these might be geoengineering has some potential here. Artificial intelligence has some potential. And this one for me is very interesting. Um, because just a few years ago, this was not something that anybody took particularly seriously. And we've seen over the last three, four years, increasingly top experts in artificial intelligence are saying, hang on, we should pay some serious attention to the potential for AI systems to um, cause huge harm to humanity uh, or even extinguish it. And so these are people you know, like Elon Musk, who just invested a billion dollars in an AI company, um, like Bill Gates, who runs Microsoft, which does a lot of work in artificial intelligence. And I think once these people, who have a huge amount of commercial interest in AI being readily adopted everywhere, start saying things like, AI might actually be an extinction risk for humanity, it's worth taking pretty seriously because they, if they have any vested interest here at all, it's to make sure that nobody ever talks about any risks from AI. Um, So I would really take what they have to say uh, pretty seriously. And then you also look at people like um, Stuart Russell, who's one of the the leading computer science experts, co-author of sort of the definitive AI textbook, who argues that uh, when you have, you know, billions of dollars being spent on something and many of the world's smartest people trying to create artificially general intelligent systems that can sort of be more intelligent potentially or more powerful uh, potentially, than humans, you ought to at least spend a little bit of effort thinking about what you should do if they succeed um, and take that at least a little bit seriously. So how, does this, how is this a risk? Well, AI at least has the potential to be uh, very, very powerful to sort of reason mostly independently of what humans instruct it to do. And if it's very powerful and very hard to sort of stop it from doing something once it sets out to do something then we need to think really carefully about whether we've succeeded in setting it to do the thing we wanted it to do. So this might be a little bit like the sort of the genie giving you wishes problem, except it's not that AI would be deliberately misinterpreting us or trying to be difficult. It's just that AI systems would probably see the world in a fundamentally different way from humans, and it might just be very, very hard to communicate our values and our preferences to it. I think it's a solvable problem, potentially a solvable problem, but it's an important problem to get right because we might only get, you know, with a very, very powerful AI system that's very hard to interrupt, we might only get one chance to get it right. So I think it is worth putting serious effort into and this is something that researchers are only starting to look at and governments are only just starting to look at, so there's a lot of potential here uh, both for risk but also for preventing that risk in the future. I'll just spend a very quick moment on uh, asteroids and supervolcanoes because these are what people think of when they think about (coughs) extinction. Uh, I'm not worried about them at all. And the reason I'm not worried about them is because we have a huge geological record going back millennia, which tells us roughly how likely these things are to happen and how often they happen. And the answer is that there's something like a one in a thousand chance of an asteroid big enough to sort of affect the whole world, um, hitting the Earth in any one century. It's a very small probability, and supervolcanoes, which may not have any sort of extinction effect on mankind, uh, recur roughly once every 30,000 years. So we, the recurrence period is once every 30,000 years. They obviously don't work like clockwork. So um, I don't want to say that we're like we're due for one or anything like that. Um, these make me think that when it comes to all of the potential risks that might affect humanity, which ones should be we be worried about? Well, it's not these natural ones that have been ha- around for millions of years. It's the new ones where we don't have the historical record to tell us how likely these things are. It's the ones that we're creating. And that's sort of good news and bad news. It's good news um, because we're sort of in control. We're not, the bad news is we're only sort of in control. Um, but the good news is that at least we have the potential as humanity to make decisions that would stop this sort of risk from emerging. Um, because at least potentially, Uh, it's based on our choices. Now, this takes some serious effort, some serious uh, coordination and cooperation between nations that isn't happening today. Mm -hmm. I think one of the reasons it doesn't happen is because we don't uh, systematically and sufficiently address uh, future generations and the consequences of our actions on future generations. And so one of the things that I think countries around the world should be doing is something which (laughs) actually the the Welsh uh, Assembly just brought about, which is the introduction of a, a commissioner for future generations who's responsible for making sure that all parts of government are thinking about sustainability and thinking about the long term. That's the sort of thing that I think we can mirror and learn from and copy across a bunch of different levels of government, nationally and internationally. But it's also really, really, really important not to, you know, much as we shouldn't become complacent because of the Paris Agreement on climate change, we shouldn't be complacent just because there's someone whose job it is to think about future generations. If they're siloed off somewhere and not given any real power, the only effect is it gives everybody else an excuse to not think about future generations in their own work because they think someone else has it under control. That, that shouldn't happen, but it might happen, and I think it, it, it may even be a risk here um, with the new future generations commissioner. But what we do need is sustained and long-term thinking about the future across all different levels of government and how these sorts of risks, which probably won't happen during any one political party's term in office, which probably won't even happen during any one person's lifetime, get managed because the consequences of making an error on this are potentially so big on the future endowment of humanity that it needs some attention now.